make that decision to step into the suffering, God's all-sufficient grace, his power, everything that you need, he will amply supply for you. Sometimes we don't even realize the degree to which we are doing this. I mean, that's where I find myself. When I'm working at dealerships, and I've, I just have, I'm down to just one right now. When I visit that dealership, and I've been at this dealership for over 20 years, tw- over 25 years, uh, there's probably been 50 to 100 times in which I've had probably more, in which I've had conversations with people, many of which are managers, at least in small ways, doing what I can to represent Christ. And, and can I just be honest with you? It has been very hard. It has been, a, it has been hard to know where do you draw the line? How bold am I to be with this manager? How bold am I to be, honestly, with anyone But I want to represent Christ, and I want to represent him well. And I I have to be honest with you, I'm not an extrovert. Doing stuff like this is out of my comfort zone. I would imagine that for most of us, we can relate to Timothy. It's out of our comfort zone too. And for me then to step into the possibility of offense, of losing that account, you know, I, I try to weigh that, but you know what, church? Here's the bottom line. I would rather be too bold than to backpedal, to be to share too much rather than too little. At the end of the, the age, when I stand before God, I don't want to say, you know what, God? I played it safe. And God's going to ask, well, what do you mean by playing it safe? And I would probably have to say, because I took my one little talent and I buried it. I think you get the point. Guys, one life to live. We, we want to embrace the suffering because when we do that, and I, I found that over the, over the years, God has opened up the doors and he, I, I realized there's, there's more. I can go further. I can, I can share more. And so every day when I go on that dealership account, that, that lot, I am praying every day, probably several times a day. God, what can I say? I'm about to go into the man. They call it the tower. It's where the managers are and do the deal. I, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to be talking with them. I'm going to be showing my list, asking questions, whatever I need to do. I've got a good relationship with all of them. God, how can I represent Jesus right now? What can I say? What conversations can I enter into or promote? What can I do to share Christ? And over the years, God has given me numerous, most of them are just little opportunities. But I realize that every single time there's a risk. I realize that, when you, that every time you share at your workplace, there's a risk. I just want to let you know, be willing to be too bold than not bold enough. Embrace the suffering. And he says, be strong. That word, be strong, real, it comes from a verb. We get the word dynamite from this. Dunamis is the noun. And it means to be empowered, to be strong in this grace. And when you step into that suffering, it's amazing the words God will give you. It's amazing the opportunity that will present itself as you step in uncertain of what could lay ahead. For some of us, we don't want to find out. 
because it could mean the end of our job. I'm just going to, can you please pray about that? Can you please pray every time you go to work and say, okay, God, how can I do this and represent you well? I'm going to guess you can probably, probably share a lot more than you think. That people, their ears are open a lot more than you're aware of. The second thing is he, he tells them, then if you're going to embrace suffering, then I want you to teach others to do the very same thing. This gospel that we are not supposed to be ashamed of and is the power of God unto salvation, I want you to share it with reliable men who can teach others. So Paul passed it on to Timothy. That's, that's the second generation. Timothy then passes it on to reliable men, that's the third generation, who can teach others. The others, that's the fourth generation. So Paul wants to be a dad, grandfather, great-grandfather. He wants to be a great-grandfather in the faith. And I'm just going to tell you, by the way, just from the physical perspective, physical stance, you don't know what kind of a parent or grandparent or great-parent, great, you don't, let me just word it this way, you don't know what kind of a parent you are until your grandkids come along. Because the idea is not just to train your children well, but to train your children to be good parents, right? That's been, our, that's been Meredith's and my goal. As a father in the faith, Paul wants to be a good great-grandparent. He wants to be able to train Timothy so that he can train others who train others and pass it along to still have that fire in his spirit that's willing to risk everything if necessary to get the word out and share the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is the only way that the gospel is going to spread. That's the only way in which the yeast will leaven the entire lump. That is the only way. It is you and I. It's not just pastors like me. I'm, I'm an introvert. And, and every time I have to speak it to, to others, there is that uncomfortability. Is that a noun, by the way? I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable, and I need to overcome that. And I would imagine that's exactly where you are, to, to overcome that, because you need to embrace this potential suffering, the potential pain to, to be able to share the gospel and not be ashamed of it. And so he says, entrust the truth then to others. Now, when you do this, he says to Timothy, you need to be able, third verb, endure hardship. It's the same word for hardship that was translated suffering back here in chapter 1, verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. That's the same Greek word that's used here, endure the suffering. So he then gives three analogies, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And with each of these analogies, he then gives one very simple, basic principle. And I want us to see each one. Because they will tell us the what and the why and the how of enduring hardship. So first he says endure hardship like a soldier. And he takes that analogy and he moves with it to his very first point. And that is... As you look there, what is it, verse, uh, verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Why is that? Because he wants to please his commanding officer. Now, 
That, this verse has been misunderstood by some, saying that Christians shouldn't get involved in politics because politics, that's civilian affairs. Well, see, that's not his point. His point isn't that we shouldn't get involved in civilian affairs. His point is, as a soldier, that's the analogy, the soldier does not get involved in the civilian affairs. The soldier's, pers- the soldier's purpose is to enforce Roman law. And if people are not observing Roman law, I mean, we have policemen more than our military that does that, more than soldiers. But if police officers, police officers don't get involved in civilian affairs. It's not that they don't break up fights in bars and that kind of thing or home disputes and this kind of thing. That's not, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that when they're on duty, they don't go out into a party. When they're on duty, they don't get... The word here in the Greek literally means business transactions or tradings or negotiations. See, that's outside the purview of what a soldier's calling is. A soldier's calling, it's a specific job, and it is not business. It's not civilian affairs. And so basically, he's saying, as a Christian, Timothy, you have a calling on your life. For you to get involved in civilian affairs would be like the Christian getting involved in sin. Like the Christian getting involved in something that is a distraction to him and that pulls him away from his calling. Timothy, right now, there's something in your life that's pulling you away or trying to pull you away from that pure, singular devotion to Jesus Christ and a willingness to share and embrace the suffering to share the gospel. There's something that's distracting. It's the desire for comfort. It's the desire for peaceable living. I mean, we all want that, but the problem is that the price tag on it is usually too high. It forces us to shut our mouths and not be vocal when we need to be vocal. Timothy, don't get involved in civilian. Don't be distracted. Don't be lured by the things in the world. And now, as I say, many of these things are sin. Some of them, they're not sin. It's just that they're distractions. They pull us away from the main thing, the calling of God. Here's what I want to ask you. When you go to work, If you were to list your priorities, what what would they look like? Just right now, rapid fire through your mind. Okay, I've got this responsibility and this responsibility and this responsibility. And you want to make sure that you please your boss. And I think that's very good. But also realize that you're not just going to work as an employee. You're going to work as an ambassador, as a representative of Jesus Christ. And so to do that requires that we have to do a lot of praying and thinking how to go about that. God forbid that we feel as if we can never say anything about Jesus. If you can, I would even go so far as to challenge you that if you're in a profession in which you can never, ever, ever talk about Jesus, you're in the wrong position, you're in the wrong job. And here's why I say that. Because your eternity hinges on how you live for Jesus and speak for him in this age. 
And if there, is an, if there is a boss that's saying you can't talk about Jesus ever, number one, I think that's, and at least in America, that's illegal. But number two, I would venture to say, then you need to find a way. And I'm going to challenge you, find a way to talk to people about Jesus. Maybe it's during lunchtime. You're off the clock. Don't let your boss try and intimidate you saying, hey, but you're still under our roof. No, you're off the clock. You're not working for them. You're having a casual conversation and you are calling someone to Jesus. Be creative, pray. Let's think about how we can live for him and not be so caught up in these civilian affairs that they become civilian affairs when they consume us, church, when they become distractions from the main thing, living for his kingdom. And I get it. We got to work. We have to provide for our families. I know I do. But if I place that so high and I never talk about Jesus, I think I've got a problem. And it's not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a child of God living in Jesus' kingdom. Okay? We find a way. And if, we, if we're sincere about it, God will open the right door. <clears throat> the soldier then, his goal is to not get involved in that, not get involved at least the Christian not getting involved in non-kingdom living, but he is seeking first the kingdom of God. So here's my question. How is the devil trying to shut you up or trying to shut you down? Now, I'm not saying that your job, the, the, the next, this coming Monday, you're going to go in with one of those you know, bullhorns and start preaching the gospel on top of your work desk. I'm not suggesting this. But you can find some creative ways to talk about Jesus. I can guarantee you that. I can promise you. And if you're stuck and you've been thinking about it, come speak with me. I'll pray with you and we will come up with some creative ways. I've lived long enough to, to be in those types of situations thousands of times praying, God, how do I do this? And God has always shown a way and I know that he'll do the same for you. The second thing he does is he talks about this analogy of being an athlete. And we actually get our word athlete from this Greek word. Hebrews 12.1, listen to what Hebrews 12.1 says. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If you remember Chariots of Fire and he is running, or is it, I think it's in the beginning of the movie, and he's running around the track, and it's just a quarter mile, so it's one time around the track. And he trips, and he, excuse me, he falls into the infield, tumbles several times, and he gets up, he gets back on the track. He got pushed out of lane, okay? He got back up on the track, and he ran, 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 and in the very end, you see him going like this, and that was his characteristic way of running, and he, won, he wins the race. Can I just tell you this, that his goal was never to fall down out of his lane. Actually, if that happens, you, you're generally disqualified. You have to stay in your lane. You can't go in the next person's lane. You get disqualified. When you're in a relay and you're passing the baton, you have a beginning and an ending point. You generally start in the beginning, though you don't have to, but wherever you stand, and start running so the person behind you can pass the baton off. You have to receive the baton before that final line. And if you receive it after it, your team's disqualified. And we've seen that happen in the Olympics. Even with America being disqualified in certain heats because they didn't pass the baton. There are rules 
the athletes have to follow. If they don't follow the rules, they either get points against them or deducted, or they're disqualified. And he's saying the same thing is here with Christianity. You, Timothy, as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, you're an athlete. Compete to win the crown, but you got to do it according to the rules. I'm, I'm not talking, he's not trying to lay a legalistic set of rules or laws upon him that he feels like this little hamster in the treadmill. No. But I'm going to tell you this. If you're going to succeed in the kingdom of God, you must do it according to kingdom principles. Not according to what you think is the best way to respond. Okay? But according to biblical kingdom principles. To do life and to represent Jesus well God's way, not your way. Now, when I say your way, hopefully your way is God's way. But the way I'm using it here, I'm supposing it's not. So there's your way, and then there's God's way. See, your way is pragmatic, isn't it? Whatever works, well, that's what we do. Pragmatic. Most politicians are pragmatic. God's way is principle. It's not whatever works. It's God's way. It's his principle. Because sometimes what works is lying. Sometimes what works is cheating to make a deal and to get millions, sometimes billions of dollars, acquiring another company but not showing them all the books or vice versa. That's cheating. But you sold the company or you bought the company and you walked away a millionaire. Wow. Yeah, but you cheated to do it. Our way, many times, is what's pragmatic. Whatever works, whatever works out, if lying worked out, then that's what we do. And in business, I can't tell you how many Christians, generally in leadership, but how many Christians, they live this way. They live a pragmatic life rather than a principled life. Your way may be white lies. God's way is no lies. Our way might be, you know, I got to be like the boys, okay? Because if I, if I talk like the boys and I yuck it up with them and I kind of tell them yeah, some little off-color jokes there and I kind of get in with them, hey, one day I'll have a great witness for them, all right? Because they'll trust me. No, they won't. They're thinking you're just like them. You tell them that you're a Christian, and they're probably going to step back and say, whoa, really? Seriously, dude. Now you're pulling our leg, aren't you? Right? I'm going to tell you what. You live the way Jesus calls you to live, and that is what is going to minister to them. Don't wait for someday. Someday I'll tell them I'm a Christian. Just not right now because I'm, kind of, I'm kind of getting in with the crowd. It, you, to do that, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to compromise to do that. Don't be like the boys to get the promotion. Don't be like the boys to maybe one day share Christ with them. Be like Jesus, period. Don't be a taker. Be a giver. Many leaders in our day, politicians or just leaders in businesses, they're takers, they have employees that want to use them to their advantage so that they can grow the company, look good to the owner or their boss or whoever, and so they get the next promotion. And so they use their people. They're kind of like 
just pawns on a chess on a chess game. And if you sacrifice a pawn or here, but you get a rook or a, a bishop in, in its stead, you make out. See, that's pragmatism. That's not principle. Now, you, you have to play the game of chess pragmatically, okay? So it does, that analogy breaks down here. The truth, though, is that when we live in the kingdom, we don't take advantage of people. We live in the kingdom and we give. We don't take our goal is to give. Be a giver. That's God's way. Don't be a taker. See, that's generally our way. Don't promote self. See, our way is promoting self to get the promotion, to look good in other people's eyes, to get the applause, to become famous, to whatever you got to sacrifice. It's all about promoting self. In our marketing society, it's, that's what it's all about. God's way is promote others. I've heard it said, you, wanna, you want to advance in, in, your, um, in your business, in, in a business that you're, you're working in? Be careful of selfish ambition. And one of the ways that I personally have heard like all my life since I was in my 20s was the way you avoid selfish ambition, work hard to get any kind of promotions. Works, here's, here's what it is. Work so hard that your boss gets promoted. There's no selfish ambition there. But it will motivate you to work so hard that your boss looks so good that he gets promoted. Because what that does is eventually people realize what an excellent worker you are. You've heard the scriptures, you know, work hard, not only in your boss's eyes, but in the Lord's eyes. You work as if you're working for the Lord. Whatever we do, it is not to promote self, it is to promote others. Proverbs eleven twenty four. it says this, one man gives freely, yet gains even more. How ironic is that? One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. See, we think that the best way to get it all to succeed in life is to keep everything that we get. And we build, we're building it up. We're stockpiling it. But, G, but the scriptures and Jesus himself says, no, if, if you want to get ahead, if you want to get more, you got to give. You, wanna, you want God's blessing to come upon you so that it's running over, shaking together, pouring into your lap, running over? Then give, 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 give. Be generous. One man gives freely, it gains even more. Maybe our mindset is, do the minimum for pay. But God's principle, the way an athlete competes in the race to gain the victor's crown, according to the rules, God's way is, don't do the minimum for pay. No, no, do the maximum for pay. If you get paid 14, 15 bucks an hour, don't just look at, okay, well, these are my responsibilities, and that's what I'm going to stick with. And when I'm done those responsibilities, I'll just stand around and talk and chat with people and such and, you know, visit the water cooler a lot and that kind of thing. And I'm going to suggest to you, maybe try a different way. Do the maximum amount. Work so hard that your boss rarely has to tell you what to do because you already have figured out what you need to do. And when he says, hey, have you done this and this? Yep, already done it. I'm, I'm actually working on this next thing. Okay, wow, great. Do the maximum for what you get paid for not the minimum. Don't try and just get by. Our way may be, hey, you can't live according to the Bible in the workplace. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out here. 
God's way is you can't afford not to live according to the Bible because it's a dog-eat-dog world. And you must live in God's endless, abundant grace. And this is how you do it. Like the athlete, we compete to win the crown, but we compete according to the rules. Now, the victor's crown here is the Stephanos. It's that wreath that's generally placed upon the head. We, we saw the Stephanos, that crown, that wreath, if you will, that the athlete wins for winning his competition. We see that a lot in the book of Revelation. Remember we went through the first, what was it, seven chapters? We came across that word numerous times. And we also saw, within that context, seven letters, and every letter concluded with, to him who overcomes. See, the Stephanos, the victor's crown, is given to the one who overcomes. In our day, in the church, the word overcomer is a huge word. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be successful in the world's eyes. That is not what it means. It's, in fact, that's not what it means at all. To be an overcomer is to give away, to sacrifice, to embrace adversity, to be able to stand for the kingdom principles and seek to share Christ as much as you can to have this kingdom mindset in which we're living for the kingdom constantly, first and foremost, above all else, that is an overcomer. And when you face adversity, you step into it if that's what you need to do. That's an overcomer. It is one who has faith. It's not one who has faith for that Lamborghini and that, or that Mercedes. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just speak it. In, I'm just going to speak it out. And you know, my words have power. And, and whatever I speak, man, that's what I'm going to get. Why? Because I have faith. It's kind of like a blank check that I get to fill in the numbers. And God's signature is guaranteed there at the end. And people in America live that way. And they're filled with greed. And, and many of them don't even realize it because their pastor's been preaching it since they were little kids. That's not, that's not the way we live in the kingdom. It's not about getting, it's about giving. If there's a competition in the kingdom, it's about how much you can give rather than stockpile. Amen? That's what we're living for. We are living to be poured out, as Paul said, like a drink offering upon others. Okay? We sacrifice. So here's my question. And again, you're, I'm pro, I'm, I want you to promise me, after the message, your goal, you're, you're not going to feel guilty, okay? That is not the purpose of this message. If you regularly feel guilty when you feel convicted by something, God wants to be able to change your mindset. If Christ has truly paid for all your sins, and therefore any guilt that you might feel, the, the conviction of the Spirit of God is to move forward and embrace something that you've not embraced before, or to just do it better. It's not to feel guilty. See, guilt causes us to turn inward. It's to bring us to repentance and to salvation, but if you're already saved, it's to move you forward. So the sermon this evening, if... if I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't want you to feel guilty about it. I want you to feel motivated by it, okay? Can you see the difference? Here's my question. How many people who work with you know you're a Christian? I want to give a little pregnant pause right there. I want you to think about this. How many people that you work with know that you're a Christian? 
Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you about your neighbors because you, you may not know too many of your neighbors, to be honest with you. No, Mickey, Lana, you live in a very small little cul-de-sac there. I think you know everybody on that. But some of them, I think one of them, you, you may not know too well because you rarely see them. I don't know, but maybe that goes for you. For me, I, it is so hard for me to see. I, hey, JP, what's up, buddy? And he waves to me and off he goes. And it's like, yeah, every now and then we get the wave. Hey, I know his first name anyway, right? That's good. Walter, he's across the street. Hey, Walter, but I, I rarely get to talk with him. But okay, those you talk with at work or neighbors that know you well, do they know you're a Christian? And, and I'm, I just want to ask you if they don't know that you're a Christian. I want to be careful here, but if they don't know you're a Christian, why don't they know? Do they have to guess just simply because you don't cuss and you don't tell dirty jokes? Is that all they have to go on? Or do you look for opportunities, pray for opportunities, pray for them so regularly and tuned into their needs that you ask for them? Maybe you even have asked them, hey, I want you to know that I'm going to be praying about your wife's situation here or your child's situation. I want you to know I'm praying for you. Have you ever asked, have you ever told them that? that that's just, what a simple little drop in the bucket, but how much that can be such a blessing. Because when people are in such desperate need and they hear you're going to be praying for them, that, that's like, wait, so you're going to take time out of your busy day and you're going to, you're going to think about me, not like right now, but when you go home and you're watching a movie and, and afterwards that you're, you're actually going to pray for me? That touches people. That touches the world. That, that's foreign to them. I mean, most people, you know, they'll take, hey, thinking of you. Okay, that's, that's great. And, and I'm, I'm not going to downplay that, thinking of you. But how much better to say, praying for you. Or just tell them right there in the office, praying for you. But my question was, how many people who work with you know you're a Christian. Church, we are, as Christians, the victor's crown is guaranteed in the sense that it is promised to us and God doesn't go back on his promises. It is yours. Eternal life is yours. It's not just something that he promises to give you in the future. We call that heaven. That is an aspect of eternal life. Don't get me wrong. But if you're a Christian right now, you have eternal life inside of you right now. You have this life of the spirit of life living in you. And Jesus called it abundant. In John 10, abundant life. You have it. It's yours right now. Wow. It, the most Amazing thing as a Christian is being able to tell people that good news. Have you ever succeeded at something or heard good news and you could hardly wait to tell your best friend? I mean, you were, you were just chomping. Maybe you just texted them right away. Maybe you called them up. Maybe when you were, knew you were going to see them like at a Saturday night, I can hardly wait. I'm going to tell them this great news. It's, there's just something we love to tell people good news. Well, church, the word gospel means good news, Right? So this is, this is for, for the person who is a, an overcomer, that's what we live for, right? I have this amazing eternal life, and I'm living my life as an overcomer. 
and I want to point people to Jesus because that's what this is about. The, the third analogy is farmer. The focus here is that he is a hardworking farmer. He, he, he puts his hands to the plow literally every day. He works hard, and the promise is that he should be the first to receive from the crops. Now, understand who he's speaking. He's speaking to Timothy. Timothy helped Paul make tents. I'm going to imagine that Timothy picked up on that, and his side job to support himself, generally speaking, was making tents or repairing tents, just like, Pete, just like Paul. Because he, Silas, Timothy, they worked with Paul, and their business was making tents and repairing tents. But when God provided through the people giving to them, they received that. And they didn't have to work. And they were able to give themselves completely to the kingdom. It's just for those who are apostles like Timothy, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and many others being itinerant, many times they had to rely on a job. Some of them didn't. Peter was one of those. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, he, as an apostle, he had the right to be able to expect people to support his ministry. But Paul was laboring with a lot of unbelievers, and he could not have that expectation. But he's saying here to Timothy, you know what? Work hard, and you should have the right to be able to receive from others. That's what he's saying here. So since you're not Timothy, since you're not laboring like Timothy is, I want to focus on this word, working hard. Just very simply, working hard, being diligent. Find out what your boss's expectations are and exceed them. Now, that, that's just laboring in the workplace. But when you have that mindset that when you are employed, that it's, it's, it's not an opportunity to just quickly do your work so that you can talk. You know, I quickly learned as a teenager, I worked at McDonald's. There was never a time in which you should be standing around just talking. You can clean and talk, but there's never a time in which you're standing around doing nothing because you're on the clock, making a whopping $4.35 an hour, people. Man, I was raking in the dough, okay? Man, I was making such good money. How, why should I ever be talking without working? Right, okay. Yeah, so people, you know, $15 an hour, I think, is about what minimum wage is just about anyway. The truth, though, is that we work hard and that mindset isn't just in the workplace, but it's who we are as followers of Jesus, representing him well, laboring in his kingdom. So here's what I'm going to ask. This is what I'm going to challenge you. When you go to work this coming Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, if, you're, if your work is outside your home, I realize that for some of you, you work remotely. But if you go to work and you, you work outside the home, then I'm going to encourage you when you go, work your job hard but also realize that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are working hard for his kingdom as well. Working hard for his kingdom, laboring in his kingdom. When you go to work, don't just have a worker's mindset. 
that says, okay, now I'm, I'm just going to do my job, and you're so focused on that. I appreciate guys who are focused. I'm a focused person. Man, I tend to tune everything out when I am focused, okay? Dad, the house is on fire. Hang on a second. I'm figuring this math problem out. I got to balance the checkbook. Don't interrupt me, but dad, right? So I can be really focused. Can I just tell you, my kids are laughing. Yeah, that's dad. I can be really focused, but you know what? When I am focused on my work, I have had, and this is hard for me, church. It really is. If you struggle with it, I probably struggle with it twice as much as you, okay? Twice as much as you, definitely. Anyway, when I'm working and there's an opportunity to have a conversation with someone, maybe a client, I'm working on their car, they just want to check it out. I, there's something, there's an immediate, okay, Mike, hang on. This isn't all about work. See, this is about people as well. This is a customer. I have to think through this to get my mindset, okay, all right, they're not an interruption. I have to tell myself that they're not an interruption. They are a part of your day, and they are a people with eternal souls. I have to walk myself through this. I'm so focused. And if I can, and I'm not spraying because I, I can't stop when I'm spraying, but if, if I'm just prepping the bumper, doing just small little stuff on a car, to talk with them, to draw them out. I have to treat customers a little bit different than employees. It might take me a little bit longer in a conversation to bring up the Lord. But if I am there, not just doing physical work, but I am there doing the work of the kingdom, that should cross my mind at some point during my day. At some point in my day, I need to be thinking, how can I represent Christ right now in this place? And you know what? If there is a leader's meeting and they're talking about doing something that is quite objectionable, for me to have no problem saying, you know what, I'm going to suggest that this is not the best road to go down. Not only does it uh, hem and haw on company policies, but for myself, it, it, it runs counterintuitive to what I want to accomplish when I'm working at this company. I, I would just encourage us to go down this road and to suggest something and to just be vocal. Anyway. I want to wrap it up by looking at these last two paragraphs because Paul's focus is on what I just shared with you. And then he said, because he tells us, he tells them right there in verse 7, look at the verse 7, after he shared those three verbs and then those three analogies, reflect on what I am saying. Just pause right now. In Hebrew, they, you see that in the poetry, they use the word sila. Just stop right now and think about what's just being said. And that's what Paul's telling him. Timothy, just, just pause right now. Think about what I'm saying. And he says, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. And I hope as we have paused and reflected on this, just like Timothy was supposed to do, I hope we've gleaned some insights into this. And then Paul says, okay, now remember. Remember Jesus Christ. And he mentions two things about Jesus, and he sums it up by saying, this is my gospel. Or this is the gospel. The so the two things are very simply, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, raised from the dead, and descended from David. He was raised from the dead, and by being raised from the dead, proved that he was a victor over sin and death. 
by being descended from David, that means he was the promised Messiah. That means that he is the bondage breaker of Isaiah 61. Not only is Jesus died for our sins, raised from the dead, empowered now to give me eternal life and to break the bondages in my life. This is the gospel. Now, we're going to look at an example in which someone kind of hemmed and hawed on the resurrection, saying it had already taken place. And the resurrection is so crucial in the gospel. Why? Because Jesus himself, church, was raised from the dead. If Jesus was not raised, we are still dead in our sins. There is no power that God gives us then to be victorious over sin. But by Jesus being raised from the dead, demonstrated, sin and death could not hold Jesus down. Remember, he paid for my sin, but he was raised from the dead. That's the gospel. He is, he, he is raised from the dead. Romans 1, 4 says, thereby declaring himself to be the son of God. He is a descendant of David, thereby declaring him to be the son of man. He's the son of God and the son of man. See, this is the gospel. And Paul says, I labor for this. I endure hardship so that all the elect, and, and we don't know who the elect are, church, and, until they give their hearts to Christ. But he labors for the elect. Labor as much as he can, sacrificing, stepping into the adversity so that they would be able to come to salvation. Wow. And, for, and since Paul doesn't know who those are, he, he's laboring for anyone who will listen, anyone who will give them the ear to hear the gospel. That was just, that's just the way he lived his life, completely and fully. And I want to just look at this last paragraph here. I meant to spend a little bit more time on this. But he says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. In Galatians chapter 220, it says, I have been crucified and I no longer live. Mike Curtis no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. See, I died. When I became a Christian, I died. I died. Mike Curtis died so that Mike Curtis could live. Christ in me. That's life. The spirit of life now living in me. So I died so that I might live. And he goes on and he says, so, and we endure so that we will reign with him. See, when you endure, when you step into the adversity, when you overcome, we overcome your fears, your worries, your anxieties, the what ifs in life, instead of pulling back, stepping into it, he says, you discover more than enough grace and you overcome. Paul says, when I am weak, that's when I'm the strongest. Endure, embrace the hardship, reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. And I just want to say this. The Greek word here, and I'm going to share it with you for a reason. The Greek word here is arneomai. There is a word that is very similar, somewhat I would say even a synonym, and it is ap arneomai. They are similar, but they are not the same. And I can only tell you that they are not the same, not because of what the Greek language says specifically about them, but how each of those used are, each of those words are used in the New Testament. Peter op arneomide Jesus three times, but he never arneomide him. Okay? I want you to see the difference here. 
He denied knowing Jesus, but he never denied Jesus. Arneomai. That's the word that's used here. This is a word then that would be synonymous with apostasy. This is the word in which it's not just a temporary denial. It is a lifestyle. It is a determination. I am walking away. And, and, and let me just say this, and, and there's so much more that could be said. I'll probably share just a, bit, a little bit next week. There are two people that are mentioned in the next few verses um, that he gets into. Um, and, and he says, that here's someone, and, and they're not even, de- they're, they're declaring a gospel that's off course. But even Paul is unwilling to say whether they are truly saved or not. He says, the Lord knows. And God will bring harsh judgment upon them. And if they are unbelievers, then they will live separately from him forever and ever. But even Paul doesn't weigh in on that. And I'm just going to suggest, there are people that I know, and they've walked away from the Lord. Have they apostatized? See, I don't know. But to op our neomai Jesus is something that is temporary. See, that's what Peter did. In a moment of stress, in a moment of weighing life and death, he blew it, and he chose to say, I, I don't know him. I don't know him. And he, he did not deny Jesus, our Naomi. See, that's a permanent thing. But in the, in the moment, in the fear, the worry, the risk of it all, he stepped back. And the Bible says, after doing that three times, he, let, he stepped outside of the courtyard and he wept bitterly. And Jesus still loved on him. And maybe this is something that we have done in our workplace. It, it, under the, you know, just the emotion of the moment, the fear of the moment, we, we, we've, we've denied even knowing him. Hey, Mike, I hear you're a Christian. Really? Where, where did you hear that? Because we're afraid to represent Jesus. See, that can happen to us. When he's saying those who disown him here, he's not talking about that. He's talking about someone who walks away from Jesus for good, forever. I will have nothing to do with Jesus anymore. And for those, Jesus says, you disown me and I will disown you. But then he gets into this word. Do you see that in verse 13? He said, but if we are faithless, See, that doesn't mean you have no more faith left in you. Jesus used this, the gospel writers used this word, faithless, that is having no faith, and made it synonymous with having little faith. The story of Jesus calming the storm in one gospel, this word having no faith is used, and in another gospel, it's a Greek word that means having little faith. You see, when you're a faithless... It means in that moment, temporary moment, there's no faith. But the very next day, well, suddenly you have faith. What's up with this? And Jesus rebuked his disciples. You have sporadic faith. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Or gone today, here tomorrow. And, And we need to have faith always. And that was his challenge to them. Peter, why are you sinking? Why are you looking at the waves? Oh, you have little faith, or are you of no faith? See, when, when we're caught up in the emotion of the moment and we're lacking faith, what does Jesus do? He doesn't disown us. He doesn't look at us and say, I'll have nothing to do with you. He didn't do that with Peter. He loved Peter. 
Remember when Peter denied him, it says right there, Jesus looked at him. He didn't look at him, you know, forget you, buddy. No, he looked at him as if he wanted to connect with him. Don't give up on me. Don't turn away. Satan's desire, remember he told him earlier, Satan's desire to sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Peter. Prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. It did in the moment. But, but he says, and when you repent, encourage your brothers. And that's exactly what Peter did. But in that moment, Peter failed him. Church, there are going to be moments in which you're going to fail him. Temporary moments, driven by the emotion. It might be fear or worry, anxiety, whatever it is. And I'm just going to encourage you, don't give up on Jesus. Just come back to him. He says, he says to them, he cannot disown you because that would be like denying or disowning himself. You're still a follower of Jesus. And in that moment of hardship and difficulty, that loss, and you're wondering, God, why are you allowing this in my life? God's loving arms are still wrapped around you. He wants to encourage you. Don't walk away from him. Let him embrace you. Let him pull you to himself. In those moments in which you're faithless, God is faithful. Follow him. Put your ear, like a child when he crawls up in his daddy's arms, and he, they put their ear to his chest, and they can hear his heartbeat. And many times my girls have fallen asleep on my chest just listening to my heartbeat. Just crawl up in your father's arms. Just let him embrace you as you try to put your arms around him and listen to his heartbeat and rest that his heart is for you. He has not given up on you. You might be faithless in that moment, but he is ever faithful. Amen, church. Can you just stand with me? Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I just pray, take these words and use them to encourage our hearts, Lord. If any of us, Lord, are, are feeling weary in this moment, I just ask, Father, fill them with faith. Let them know how much you love them that you have not turned your back on them, that you're still working for them and you're guiding them through this process to step into the adversity, to be able to be empowered by your grace. Help us all, God, I pray in Jesus' name.